You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 10th of March 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. A very warm welcome to the programme. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up today... With six US states holding their primaries today, my guests Marie Leconte and Daniela Pellet will evaluate the candidacy of Joe Biden and ask why oh why isn't there a woman still in the running. Plus we talk about the day's other news including Berlin's pledge to take in just 100 child migrants amidst the renewed refugee crisis. And in the coronavirus panic, we hear about what airlines and publishers can do to ease disruption. Plus, we hear about the rescue of one of the world's most famous architecture schools. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to today's programme. Joining me are Daniela Pellet, editor at Institute of War and Peace Reporting, and Marie Leconte, the political journalist and author. A week after Joe Biden's comeback in the Super Tuesday primaries, could today be the moment he cements a lead over his main rival for the Democratic presidential nomination, Bernie Sanders? Millions of voters in six states take part in the next round of the primaries. Both men are determined to win. Marie, how close is Biden? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's not really an original thought, but it was a massive surprise. You know, he did look for quite a long time. Like, I mean, originally, actually, like Elizabeth Warren was doing quite well. Um, then he moved on to Bernie Sanders. And, and yeah, and I suppose because Joe Biden, actually, if you look at people on the ground in the US, you know, doesn't have that great a ground team. You know, it's not even a story of him just being ruthlessly organised and having millions of people, you know, on the doorsteps and kind of organising the campaign. So it, it has come out of nowhere. And I do, you know, I, I don't see a reason to see... Um, to, to see, you know, his fortunes changing now, I think uh, Bernie may be done. Do you think Bernie's done, Daniela? Uh, sorry to say, but I hope he's done, really, because, you know, I'm I, going according to received wisdom, I can't see how Sanders can win against Trump. And uh, for all Biden's numerous faults and flaws, he seems the most plausible option, not least because as we continue into a time of crisis, uh, you know, Joe Biden is an old duffer. He's been around. He's, he's, uh, he was vice president in what seems now a super stable part of American history. Uh, he's not very flashy. He's the opposite of flashy, really. But he seems like a safe pair of hands. And I can't quite imagine whether you know the looming apocalypse will have passed by the time of the, the elections. Which looming apocalypse well, are we talking so about? So many to choose from. So many to choose from. But yeah, you know, it, it, it comes down to me and I think should be the case for all right-minded and right-thinking people is who can beat Trump. So... My money's on Biden. There is that thing, isn't there? I think it was the Prime Minister, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Tony Blair, said that um, the trouble with being in power is that once you know what you're doing, it's too late. You've lost the electorate. You've lost your time. Biden has a second go at this, doesn't he? I mean, the fact is that he knows what he's doing. He's been vice president under what Daniela rather expertly said, one of the more stable moments in, in American history. But he doesn't seem to have capitalised that on that with the with the enthusiasm and indeed the, the, the potential that he could have done. Um, no, I agree. But also, I suppose, another way to look at it, you know, partly for the sake of, uh, of disagreeing, is that, you know, actually, two terms of Obama and Biden did Give us like did give the U.S. Trump in the end. No, clearly, and I think you know I've seen sort of like critics of Biden. I think make the quite interesting point that actually you know again you know Biden Obama caused Trump 
how is Biden the best placed person to actually win, you know, win back the presidency from him? Um, and so maybe actually it is a conscious, you know, conscious choice from Biden to actually not play too much on the, you know, this is what I did. This is what we did, because actually, you know, that's also tied into and, you know, and this is what lost our party, uh, the presidency. Would you agree with that, that Biden, that actually Biden, Obama is what gave us Trump? Or do you think it might have just been Obama? Or do you think that Trump at any point in history would have uh, lobbed a grenade into the system? Well, I, I don't think Obama was such a great president. It's only in retrospect that he seems really pretty special. Uh, there, there are so many variables on this. You know, was Clinton the right candidate? Could she have won against Trump? And I think going towards this uh, election, whoever is going to be the Democratic uh, candidate, it's going to be an election for on truthiness, really, and feelings and optics. Is that a new word? It's one of my favourites. Like truthiness. Truthiness, yeah. You know, we can talk about facts and people can relate how many tens of thousands of times Trump has lied and got things wrong and continues to do it very publicly about coronavirus. It doesn't matter, though, because the feelings, uh, I think, are, are, are what will matter more. You know, Biden is very vulnerable to accusations of uh, corruption because of um the mess in, in Ukraine, even though that is what was used to impeach uh, or try to impeach Trump. But... Just as Trump made much of, of Clinton being massively corrupt, apparently, because the emails were under investigation, he's going to do the same with Biden, who is uh, part of the old establishment, which is Trump's one of Trump's like favorite uh, targets. So he's vulnerable in in so many ways. I, I think when you if you talk about his achievements, that's not necessarily going to help him much. It's more the safe pair of hands, his measured approach, the fact he's not madly charismatic. Um, that I think he will do. I think you know he will need to to uh, to capitalize on. And as we saw with Bloomberg, the amount of money you spend and the amount of effort you make clearly means nothing anymore. One thing I would like to sort of develop a little bit further, Marie, is what um, Daniela just mentioned about the idea of um, Hillary Clinton, whether she was the right candidate. Um, the age-old debate over it, was America ready for a woman president came up quite a lot with her. And we have seen, again, from a field of very strong Democratic women in the last six months, all have fallen. And we are now back to two white men in their 70s thinking that, you know, they, they can run the show. Arguably, one of them will, because Trump's in his 70s as well. But where did all the good women go? I mean, it, it's been... Absolutely disheartening watching that race, you know, from the start of seeing, you know, such a wide field and, you know, women, women of colour, women of different ethnicities and different policy platforms kind of, you know, arguing it together and all, you know, having a decent shot. And then, as you said, you know, kind of falling one by one. Um, I'm especially disappointed about um, Elizabeth Warren, who I think, um, who I think, you know, clearly had, you know, such a such a comprehensive policy platform and he was quite a charismatic uh, candidate as well and who seemed to me maybe biased because I quite liked her but like quite a good um, nearly compromise between you know Bernie on the one hand and the kind of more moderate democratic establishment on the other and clearly you know it, she just fell again so I'm not I don't know I, I'm always quite wary of uh, analysis of the 2016 election that just says that Hillary lost because she was a woman I do think that played a part I also think she was not a very good candidate in other respects. Um, but, but yeah, and obviously watching this again and watching actually on our side of the pond uh, the Labour leadership contest, which will almost certainly end up with a new male Labour leader when it's a field of one man and two women. Um, it's just, yeah, it, it's just very depressing to watch as a woman is, I think, um, the only real analysis that I have, to but be completely honest. The narrative is arguably quite different, isn't it, when you're a woman? I think um, 
I'm not sure how many other candidates were asked about their miraculous skincare routine, apart from Elizabeth Warren. Everybody complimented her on her complexion. I wish people had done the same with Trump, because it is quite remarkable, his complexion. Well, people talk about how remarkable <laughs> his complexion is, but not perhaps as a measure of success, just as a me- me- measure of scientific interest. And it took Pete Buttigieg to, to go online and say, actually, I don't have a skincare, skincare routine, at which point his husband then went on and said, no, darling, you do, you have keels, deal with it. Um, the fact is, is that we still live in a world, don't we, where people will judge a woman on how well presented she is and, and whether her voice screeches when she hits the high notes, which arguably Warren's voice did and, and actually personally grated with me. And as soon as I heard her screech, I just went, she's never going to make it because that's not how a successful candidate should sound. It's a terrible thing to think, but it kind of bore out as true. Look, I, I agree with Marie. I thought that uh, Elizabeth Warren was wonderful in so many uh, different aspects. Um, but again, I, I, in this in this strange instance, I strangely feel a bit more optimistic. I think that uh, it wasn't with Clinton. I, I'm sure it played a part misogyny, you know, in her her lack of, of success ultimately. But I thought I think it's not just the fact that she was a woman; it's the fact that she was the sort of wrong kind of human to win that particular uh, particular race. And uh, I think the, one of the reasons that uh, Elizabeth Warren didn't really didn't make it is. Not so much misogyny, but the fact is that people are thinking, well, who will beat Trump? Well, we think a woman won't beat Trump. So reluctantly, we're not going to support a woman. And I think there is um, there is an, a cumulative effect. Um, when you see a woman in a position of power, you, you have more faith that a woman will be likely to be in a position of power. I think it really works like that. I mean, Joe Biden is a, is a Catholic, you know, once upon a time, not so long ago in American politics, the idea of a Catholic president seemed rather eccentric. No longer the case. My, uh, my dream is for, uh, you know, if, if there was to be, a, first of all, a democratic win at the, at, the, at the election, but also Elizabeth Warren as a vice president. And I think that will make massive, massive changes, uh, both in terms of policy and in terms of people's attitudes to women in positions of power. What are your thoughts on that, Marie? Um, um, well, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I would love to see Liz Warren um, as... Um, Oh, right. I was going to say as deputy, um, as vice president. Yeah, sorry, just words get away from me. Um, but but actually, I found it quite interesting that she's yet to endorse either candidate because it was, you know, originally I think people assumed that she would just kind of, you know, go out of the race and endorse um, Bernie straight away. But then it was found, you know, A, she didn't do it, but B, apparently her supporters split half and half, actually. So, um, so I'm not, you know, I, I don't think... I, I wouldn't see actually Joe Biden picking her as her VP, but I would enjoy it personally. So, so I'm suggesting Kamala Harris actually could make a good vice president as well. And yeah, and she supported um, him, I think, really a minute earlier on um, than Warren would have. So. Marie LeConte and Daniela Pellid there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Emma. Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has extended the country's emergency coronavirus measures. There is a ban on public gatherings, and people are also expected to work from home and seek permission for essential travel. Conte says the measures are designed to protect the most vulnerable. The United States has begun withdrawing some of its troops from Afghanistan as part of its deal with the Taliban. The U.S. agreed to reduce the numbers of soldiers from about 12,000 to 9,000 within 135 days of signing the agreement. The move was a condition of the historic peace deal with the Taliban. 
And authorities in the German capital Berlin have announced the city will take around 100 children from Greek refugee camps. European politicians are struggling to agree on what to do about tens of thousands of migrants who are trying to enter Greece after Turkey said it would no longer keep them. We'll have more on that story in a moment. Now back to you, Emma. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson here with Daniela Pellet and Marie Leconte in the studio. Now, Turkey's President Erdogan went to Brussels last night to try to force the EU to give ground on the refugee crisis. He wanted more money. He left empty-handed. The EU has stood firm and has won in the face of fresh refugee pressures. In Berlin, for example, the humanitarian help is still on offer, but in limited amounts. Just 80 to 100 children will be taken in from Greek refugee camps. Daniela, there's a determination here not to repeat the problems of 2015. Angela Merkel cannot repeat the Wir schaffen das approach. Uh, I'm, I was not surprised. This, this has come at a time, again, I, I hate to mention the coronavirus again, but this is the number one uh, priority that Europe is dealing with. And the idea, politically and practically, of welcoming great large numbers of uh, refugees... Um, it isn't is unlikely and this was something yeah having been watching turkey and the refugee crisis for a few years i've i've just been waiting for this to happen it seemed this is erdogan's trump card if i can say that and he was going to play it at some point and he, he's increasingly under pressure at home uh, the fact is that the that um the refugees and migrants in turkey is an issue that both akp supporters and the opposition uh, have really rallied around. Uh, you know, the, the government seems is is viewed as having failed uh, the country, and so you know, taking this kind of very extreme measure, it also plays well domestically. He is again showing that he has the power to make Europe tremble, and there is quite a consensus in Turkey that they are doing too much to absorb um, the flow of refugees and migrants, and it's about time that other other countries stepped up. Um- Erdogan's shopping list was pretty ambitious, wasn't it, when he went to Brussels yesterday? More money for Syrian refugees, um, free visas for Turkish citizens and support uh, for Turkey in the Syrian civil war. I mean, that's something that no right-minded leader of member st- 27 member states is going to say, yeah, fine, no problem, we'll do that. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I completely agree that that was not the most reasonable of shopping lists. But that being said, you know, that there is a point in saying that actually, you know, the agreement uh, between the EU and Turkey was never going to, you know, keep everyone happy for, you know, for the rest of time. It was never going to be viable, I think, for years and years. And even actually in 2016, looking at the refugee crisis, see, what worries me is that at the time, quite a lot of people said, actually, you know, this may go away for a bit, you know, this may leave the headlines for a bit this may kind of stop you know being seen as a live issue but it is not going anywhere and the refugee crisis will you know will keep being an issue and obviously it's um syria now but if you look at you know in the future of the climate emergency as well that will you know that that will move people that will make it worse so i i don't know i, I worry essentially that you know that this is just pushing the problem back a bit again and we're just going to like the eu and other countries in the west are going to sort of like keep doing that for the next few years until it's just explodes in their faces and although there is a real need by many member states to limit the amount of refugees who go into their countries i mean the rise of political populist parties just capitalizes on this we still see gestures of humanitarian care. I mean, this weekend, I think there was a a demonstration in Hamburg um, in protest of the way that the German government has handled 
the, the Turkey-Greek crisis. They weren't demonstrating for fewer refugees. They were saying, let them in. There's still that voice going, isn't there, Daniela? Yeah, and in the UK as well, uh, the reaction to the, the government wanting to restrict unaccompanied child refugees' entry into the UK was extremely unpopular. And they're still continue to be all kinds of, of, of initiatives and, and community initiatives, people hosting refugees in their houses. This is all uh, still going strong, but it's not something that civil society can handle. This is a political problem and it's a regional problem. And Europe, it's, it's very easy to say, oh, Europe should develop a strategy. But we've had four years now where uh, the tide of refugees and migrants have been kind of kept at bay artificially by Turkey. And I don't see any progress on a, a unified stance or, a, or a, um, an awareness, as Marie says, that this is an ongoing problem and, and the Syrian war is, is sort of crushing its way to, to an end. But there will be another emergency. The climate emergency is one, uh, is one other aspect. And without uh, some kind of policy on this, it, it, will, it bodes very badly for European uh, integration and European cohesiveness and it also will inevitably increase the rise of populism. And I agree, but I, I do think that, you know, it requires political will as well of thinking about Britain, obviously, you know, leaving the EU, but it should be quite easy, actually, for a government, for a British government to say, actually, you know, we're coming out of the EU, coming out of the world with this great big country, you know, Great Britain coming back. And actually, you know, we want to, you know, to show the important place we want to occupy in the world. We will take in refugees. We will lead on this. You know, we will show the example. And surely, you know, you, you can sell that in some way that actually, you know, because you do obviously need to bring, I think, your own citizens on side, but there are ways of doing it. But it's just... I, I'm not sure, you know, I've really seen many national governments doing it over the past few years. Finally, as Italy closes its doors and the world bumps elbows instead of shaking hands, who are perhaps the winners, if any, from the coronavirus? Daniela, finally, we get to talk about your favourite subject. From social and economic games, there are, there must be some benefits. Before we get to them, um, what sacrifices, if any, have you committed to the coronavirus? What's What's gone by the way, by the way I in have, an effort of preserving humanity? Oh, Daniela? well, no, only personal personal problems. <laughs> I've 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 uh, squandered a lot of money in cancelled uh, booking fees for for flights and trips, which I bitterly resent. So I'm not uh, I'm not in a position right now to. to Willfully, will, willfully sacrifice anything for the greater good. Well, that sort of leads us on to the issue that there is pressure now on a lot of airlines and, and, and you know those involved in the travel industry to say a return to flexible booking is something that should be um, considered. I mean, a, a lot of things nowadays are you can have it cheap, but if you have it cheap, you can't change it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree completely. And I think I, I do have a sense of Schadenfreude as well. And I see that the airline companies are really about to take a real beating. I think, and well, you know, serves you right. How about you? What have you given up, Marie? Um, well, I was um, <laughs> I was meant to go to Shanghai this month, uh, which obviously got cancelled to see uh, my brother who was studying there, but obviously is back in France now. Um, so then when that got cancelled, I decided to uh, treat myself to a week in northern Italy instead, five days before the outbreak uh, started spreading. Um, so I am going to Whit uh, to Whitstable, sorry, instead for a quick uh, staycation. So I suppose I'm giving up uh, flights, but also no, actually, 
so far for me has kind of been quite positive because I don't really like physical contact. And as a foreigner, I don't really like the hugging, you know, the kind of British tradition of hugging. So it has been delightful for me to be able to say, oh, no, 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 coronavirus, coronavirus. I'm sorry, just don't touch me. A pure French misanthrope, just like Molière. <laughs> and the only thing that I have given, I haven't gained, given up, but I have gained the sorest pair of hands from all the hand washing. I think my knuckles are just about to sort of collapse with in, in agony. But there are other things that people have been... Um, gaining. One lovely story coming out of Japan. Manga publishers are making comics free for those stuck at home. Isn't it nice when someone makes things better? Uh, yeah, I think Netflix is going to be doing quite well out of all of this as well. It just sadly reminds me of, um, I think it was <laughs> Pornhub who offered its free services. Where is this the, going, Marie? Um, <laughs> no, no, to the quarantine people on the cruise ship really, really early on the coronavirus outbreak. Um, I remember made the headlines by saying, you know, listen, we can help. We'll provide content to keep you um, entertained. In a genius moment of marketing. <laughs> I had heard that a brothel in Spain had been quarantined for two weeks. Oh, no. So I looked into that story and I'm very sorry to say it was not true. Like It, it made me so happy, but apparently that was written by a spoof uh, Spanish website, but then sadly picked up by other outlets. But I, I love the idea because it was meant to be with the customers as well, just all the customers and the sex workers. Preventing um, the spread of certain things. Uh, I mean, one thing that um, I have noticed is that there's a sort of pre-Christmas feeling going on here in the United Kingdom. As we see things being shut down like crazy in Italy... There's a, there's a real sense of urgency that people are trying to get jobs done, meetings held. It's almost as if we're working up to Christmas Day when everything will shut down for a little bit. I don't know if anybody else has, has found that people are absolutely making hay here in the United Kingdom while, while the coronavirus is still being contained. Well, I do think any period of self-quarantine will definitely start with eating great reserves of quality street and daytime TV and slobbing around in pyjamas. So, yeah, maybe the Christmas uh, idea has got something to it. Will we see uh, a return to sort of family values uh, Marie, if we if we sort of find ourselves all cosied up with our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and whatever for the next two weeks, or are we going to see one of those awful things that again after Christmas when everybody comes out of their little holes that everyone will want to get divorced? I'm not. I mean, what what I'm basing my answer on is uh, my friend uh, who lives in Hong Kong um, and has children, and uh, his children have not been able to go to school for five weeks, and they've been all quarantined for five weeks. And I'm pretty sure he hates his children now. <laughs> so I do, I do think that actually, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we'll bring back so you know great family love and family values. Daniela Pellid and Marie Leconte, thank you very much. In a moment, we hear a little bit more about the rejuvenation of one of the world's most important architecture schools. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson, and if you've just joined us, a very warm welcome. Finally today, Monocle's Nick Manise has good news, as one of America's most famous architecture schools seems to have been rescued from closure. Students at Frank Lloyd Wright's School of Architecture at Taliesin should know that they are fortunate. They get to study inside the architect's UNESCO-listed former residences in Wisconsin and Arizona, whilst learning to build their own structures informed by his work. As a former design student myself, Taliesin always represented the ideal education, a hands-on application of theory. Which is why I read with some relief over the weekend that the school, which was due to shut up shop in June due to a funding shortage, had been saved. Since the closure was announced in January, a host of new financial supporters have come forward, including Qing Yun Ma, a Chinese architect and former dean of the University of Southern California's architecture department. In an agreement that Ma has brokered with two Chinese universities, 
Up to 12 tuition-paying students from these institutions will study at Taliesin each year, a move that will provide the necessary financial backing to keep the school operational. Ma's support, along with the thousands of people from across the world who have rallied behind Taliesin since January, shows an understanding of the significance of the school and its model. In a time of increasing international discord, it has also highlighted that art, culture and architecture can transcend national boundaries and economic tit-for-tats between governments. Taliesin's rescue should remind people in the United States, China and elsewhere to protect and celebrate the things that we have in common rather than focus on what sets us apart. My thanks to Nick Manise there. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. And Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. Join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Listening.